Good morning. Welcome to the last lecture of ISP 205. We're going to cover some fun material in this last lecture. Uh, I will post this lecture not just uh, on the class website, but I'll post it on YouTube because I think this might be of general interest to people on the internet. I'm going to talk about fun stuff like DNA, the origin of life on Earth, aliens, AI, and the simulation question. So, uh, so far in the class, we've mainly covered basic concepts in physics, like force, acceleration, energy, and how they inform our view of the universe. In particular, how they help us think about things like the Earth and the Moon and the Sun and planets and stars and galaxies and uh, the Big Bang. And so in this last lecture, we're going to talk about somewhat more complicated things, but still along the same theme uh, as the, the main theme of this class. Um, let me start by talking about DNA. So everyone probably already knows what DNA is, and this is not primarily a biology class, so I'm just going to go over this relatively quickly can think of DNA as a complicated molecule that's present in each and every cell of our body. And it is really that uh, molecule, the DNA, that carries the information that uh, tells our body, tells each cell in our body how to build itself. Each of us actually starts with as a single cell uh, produced through sexual reproduction. And it's that single cell that duplicates itself billions and billions of times to form uh, our mature bodies. And uh, it's an interesting question how this signaling works in our body that tells a particular cell that it is supposed to be an eye cell or a brain cell or a bone marrow cell. And of course, that is beyond the uh, scope of what we can discuss in this lecture. But obviously, it's an interesting question of how all that works. Given that the basic information in each cell, which, as I said, is encoded in this DNA molecule, which I'm showing you uh, on the screen, um, each of those DNA molecules is the same in each cell. But nevertheless, the signaling tells the or controls how the uh, information in each DNA uh, molecule is expressed in, for example, in the form of proteins or RNAs uh, in your cell. And it's, it's that differentiation that tells uh, particular cells that they should behave as eye cells or brain cells or fingernail cells. So again, far too complex a topic to do justice to in this lecture, but I just want to uh, kind of give you the briefest introduction to the idea that there is some known complex molecular mechanism by which information is transmitted from one generation to the next in living organisms. Now, you might ask, how did complex living organisms uh, originate on planet Earth, and how did they get to be so complex and specialized? And of course, that topic goes under the heading of evolution and natural selection. Natural selection is a mechanism by which evolution works. Uh, if you have variations of different organisms, which are more or less adapted to their environment, and therefore more or less likely to survive and pass on the DNA or the genes in that DNA uh, that contribute to their success in that environment. This process causes species to change and diverge over time. So the important aspect of this is that it's now believed by scientists that just once you, once you have a mechanism for transmitting information for the structure and organization of an organism from one generation to another. And once you allow for there to be some variation in that genetic information, some variation in what is encoded in the DNA, then uh, once you have variation in the organisms, and then once you have variable success of those organisms in the environment, the ones that are adapted, what by, by adapted we mean they are successful in reproducing themselves in the environment, the ones that are more successful in reproducing themselves will come to dominate the environment. There will be more of that type than the other less successful types. And gradually you end up uh, amplifying the variation that was present 
in each particular species of life uh, within that environment. And we believe today that that process, which is a kind of blind process, there's no guide to that process, but nevertheless, over a very long period of time, actually billions of years, that process can lead to extremely complex organisms like ourselves. Uh, one point I'd like to emphasize is that natural selection can act on existing variation within a species. So, for example, if you have one species of bird, but they have different beak lengths, it might be that in a particular environment, it's better for the bird to have a slightly longer beak. And if so, the birds with longer beaks are generally going to be more successful in reproduction. And over time, the species, the entire species of bird in that particular environment will evolve toward having longer beaks. And the ones with shorter beaks that are disadvantaged are less likely to transmit the genetic instructions, which lead to shorter beaks. So that's an example of selection acting on existing variation within a population. So you already have a population of birds, they have different beak lengths, and <clears throat> natural selection causes the beak length that is correlated to uh, more success in terms of reproduction to eventually crowd out the uh, different, uh, in this case, shorter uh, beak types and the genes which uh, lead to that shorter beak type become rarer and rarer, less and less prevalent in the population until the whole population potentially eventually has longer beaks. And so this is an example of natural selection acting on existing variation and producing lots of different types of uh, birds, but with a particular directionality where, okay, in this environment, birds with long beaks are favored. Over time, you get mostly long beaked birds. Perhaps in another environment, having the short beak is more advantageous. And in that environment, you end up with birds with shorter beaks, but it's linked to the frequency in each population of the specific genes, the specific DNA variants or DNA information that controls beak length. And in one population of birds, you have a, it's more common to have the long beak uh, genetic variants. And in the other population, it's more common to have the short beak genetic variants. Now, in addition to selection acting on existing variation in the population, you also have an additional phenomenon, which is occasional mutations. So these are either copying errors uh, in the reproductive process, or maybe even a cosmic ray or radioactive uh, particle can hit the DNA of an organism and change it uh, in, in the cell. And um, so there are occasional random variations that are introduced to every population. And typically those random changes uh, in the DNA of an organism are not adaptive. They don't make that mutated version of the organism more fit or more able to succeed in its given environment. But occasionally something will happen where the change is actually beneficial. And of course, then that can drive further evolution or further change uh, in the species. So we have both selection acting on existing variation and then we have sources of new variation in the DNA. And it may sound crazy to think that uh, human DNA, monkey DNA, corn plant DNA, all, resort, all resulted from this process, this blind process of uh, some random changes happening, selection acting in each generation on all the different aspects of the organism that contribute to its ability to reproduce, to get food, etc. But all of that over the process of billions of years, uh, scientists believe, has led to uh, what we see around us today. So <clears throat> as I've written here in the notes, uh, humans differ from monkeys, dogs, corn plants, and each other because our DNA encodes different information. So two individual humans differ from each other in part because of their DNA and in part because of whatever environmental influences have acted on their development. Identical twins are very similar. Uh, they tend to be similar even if they were adopted into different families and raised in somewhat different environments. Um, the more DNA two individual humans have in common, the more similar, the more similar they are likely to be. And also, if you look across the animal species, 
the uh, animals with, which have the most similar DNA to humans, i.e. Uh, chimpanzees, uh, great apes, they are more similar to us than, say, a lizard or a corn plant. And so as, as far as we know, there's, there's, there, there, the entire story of how evolution works and how complex life came to be so complex is actually encoded uh, in this DNA molecule, which is used to pass information from uh, one generation of uh, species to the next. Now, only recently have we developed the technology to read out individual DNA so that we can inexpensively take a cell sample from a human or from a plant and put it through what's called a gene sequencer and read out the actual uh, amino acid letters, GCTA, uh, which encode all the information uh, in that organism's DNA. Uh, once we have that data, so for example, we have bi big biobanks now that have the DNA of, say, a million different people. Once we have that genetic information, and then once we have what's called phenotypic information, so individual information about each person in the biobank, like how tall are they, what color are their eyes, um, did they uh, have heart disease late in life? Did they have diabetes? <clears throat> From that genotype information and the gene and the phenotype information that's recorded in these big biobanks, uh, we can use AI or machine learning methods to actually, in a sense, break the code and learn how to read off from the DNA of an individual the predicted phenotypes describing that individual. So we can tell, okay, this person is going to have green eyes because these particular locations in the genome, which control eye color, we can read off what is encoded there and we can tell that that predicts green eyes. We can look at other regions of the genome and say, wow, these 10,000 specific places in the genome are the ones controlling human height. And based on the values of those 10,000 different amino acid letters, we can tell this person is going to be on the tall side. Maybe this person is going to be uh, two meters tall, plus or minus a few centimeters. That's the kind of level of accuracy that we can get to now. So uh, this is an area of science um, that is advancing very fast. It may sound like science fiction. Uh, in many ways it is, uh, but it is uh, going to develop quite a bit uh, in the course of uh, your lifetime. Now, I put a link here to a very nice discussion. There's a philosopher named Daniel Dennett, who's written an entire book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea, in which he explores all the different aspects of natural selection, evolution, uh, and such. And so I recommend that book if you want to go deeper into this topic. Now, now that we know that uh, the information that uh, governs life on Earth is uh, encoded in a specific molecule called DNA, uh, it's natural to ask the question, well, one, is there other life uh, elsewhere, not just on planet Earth? So is there is there life elsewhere in the universe? And secondly, that other life, does it also use the same mechanism uh, that we use for encoding biological information? Or are there other alternative uh, mechanisms by which a complex organism could arise? But when you look in the equivalent of their cells you find some completely different molecular mechanism by which they're encoding uh, information that uh, controls how the organism develops and what its phenotypes are. Currently, we don't really know whether there are other uh, workable methods for encoding that information other than DNA. Now, uh, let me turn to the history of life on Earth. And uh, there's a good Wikipedia entry on this uh, that I've linked to here. Uh, let me remind you that the Earth is about four and a half billion years old. And life on Earth, as far as we can tell, is almost 4.5 billion years old. It's maybe roughly four billion years old. So between the original formation of the Earth and the development of the first most primitive forms of life, we're talking about maybe half a billion years or a billion years. So you could think of that as the time scale over which you start with some, you know, favorable molecular soup. Maybe there's some water on the earth and other um, heavy elements. And uh, there's plenty of sunlight hitting the earth. And if you just start with that soup 
and no DNA and no life, maybe it takes, at least the the, re- the record here on Earth suggests <clears throat> that it took about a billion years for uh, DNA molecules to appear uh, in that pre- previously lifeless uh, environment. And actually, DNA, before DNA, there was probably something a, li- a little bit simpler called RNA, which is related to DNA. But that uh, first appearance of complex molecules, which encode biological information, and which can actually, in a sense, reproduce themselves, that's the key thing, is that one DNA molecule through some complex mechanism can basically copy itself and make a, another copy of more or less the same information. Um, that so-called replicator capability probably took about a billion years uh, to get going on Earth, maybe half a billion years. And um, one of the things I'd like to emphasize, which I'm going to emphasize in what I'm going to talk about now, is that we only have one example of that happening. So so we have an estimate based on uh, fossil record and, and uh, related things that that took half a billion or a billion years to happen on Earth, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's representative of how long that specific step in the evolution of life took on other planets. So it might be that we were very lucky, and even that first step where you go from favorable but lifeless soup to molecular replicators like DNA, maybe on most planets, if you had uh, many, many different similar planets, uh, the distribution of times over which it takes to, to reach that next stage of development, maybe the characteristic time for that is 10 billion years or 100 billion years. So it could be, in principle, that we were very lucky on Earth and it happened fast. And it's no accident that I'm talking to you on Earth because we happen to be, we happen to live on the lucky planet where complex life ha- uh, was able to pass through all the required steps and bottlenecks faster than on all the other planets. Another way of saying what I just expressed is that one draw from a distribution, a probability distribution, doesn't really tell you about the distribution. It just tells you what that one draw is from the distribution. So we know how long it took on Earth. We just really don't know how long it took would take on other planets without some additional assumption. You could assume Earth is typical of other planets, in which case that basically means we're assuming it takes about the same amount of time on other planets. It could be we were very slow and unlucky, and maybe on most planets it only took 10 million years or 100 million years for the first DNA replicators to appear. Or it could be we were super lucky And on most other planets, it takes 10 billion years or 100 billion years for it to happen. We really don't know. The only way to uh, further probe this question is to get to these other planets and try to understand their life histories, assuming there is life on these other planets. Now, I focused a lot just on that one step, which is going from favorable soup, but lifeless soup, to the first molecular replicators. Um, There are many other steps in the process of developing complex life that you could point to that are potential bottlenecks where where something kind of qualitatively uh, important happened, a big step happened, and the way that life organized itself after that step was different uh, than before that step occurred. And we just really don't know the timescales for this. So we don't know how long each of these steps that I've listed here would take in general. We know how long it took on Earth, but we don't know how to generalize that with high confidence to other planets. And the list that I gave give here is is not particularly complete. It's just uh, some obvious things. So first is, well, you've got to get some molecular mechanism, which is self-replicating in order to pass information on from one generation of life to the next. Uh, You'd like to get cells. In our case, we, an important step was that, uh, the life encapsulated itself in cells to separate itself uh, from the environment. Um, within the cells, they developed the ability to capture photons from the sun and turn it into energy. Uh, the development of cell membranes, so robust membrane around uh, the cell, uh, that's an important step. And uh, cell membranes are incredibly complex uh, sci- you know, scientific 
uh, phenomena because they, uh, the, the mel- membranes themselves have all kinds of special properties. Like they can pump things in and out uh, between the environment and the interior of the cell. They can control diffusion of things into and out of the cell. So the, the membrane itself, the biological membrane itself is an incredibly uh, complicated thing. Um, at some point you have to go f- presumably from, at least we did go from single cell organisms to multicellular life. We had a division uh, into between plants and animals um, those animals uh, eventually developed large brains. Um, these are just a few of the steps that you could point to as being really crucial to the process of development of life on Earth. And again, for each of these steps, uh, we know how long it took on Earth. We do not know how long it took uh, would take in general on some randomly selected but similar planet. Okay, so this is a timeline. I think it took I took it from the Wikipedia entry and. Starting from the beginning, if you go all the way back four and a half billion years ago, you have the the formation of the Earth, uh, earliest uh, capture of water, perhaps from comets uh, that crashed into the Earth, which were made of ice. And you'll see it's about four billion years ago. Again, these these are not these numbers are not known with super high precision, but. Uh, you start to see some of the earliest fossils about 4 billion years ago. So that leads us to think, okay, we have this favorable soup, which includes water and other uh, heavy elements like carbon, things like that. By heavy elements, I mean elements that are synthesized in stars. And so um, would not perhaps have been present in some of the earliest stars, um, but uh, are more present now. So nitrogen, carbon, uh, some metals, things like that um, would have been present uh, on Earth from the beginning, but maybe not in some early planets and early stars that formed closer to the original Big Bang, which was 13 and a half billion years ago. So um, um, it looks like here it took half a, roughly half a billion years to get from soup to single-celled life, DNA replicators, and then single-celled life. Uh, we got photosynthesis maybe three and a half billion years ago. Um started seeing multicellular life only one and a half billion years ago. So it took 3 billion years to go from soup, water on earth, you know, earth is formed, water on earth. Then 3 billion years later, we get the first multicellular life. So we were stuck in single cell mode for quite a long time. Uh, you get multicellular life, and then that multicellular life can become specialized into plants, uh, different kinds of uh, creatures like dinosaurs. And then very, very recently, you start to get things uh, as specialized as mammals and primates. And of course, all the action involving humans is happening just in this last little blink of an eye, really the last couple million years uh, of evolution of life on Earth. And again, that mechanism of natural selection that I described in which you have a distribution of organisms, types, each of which has slightly different DNA from other individuals. There is selection acting on those types. They're competing for energy. They're competing for maybe mating resources, whatever it is. Um, And the more successful ones are able to pass on their DNA. The ones that are not successful are not able to pass on their DNA. So there's this constant selection acting on types or different DNA, you know, forms of the DNA molecule, and then occasional mutations in the DNA itself, which are caused by random events. So, so all of that stuff is going on. And you'll notice there isn't necessarily any intelligence driving it. There's no entity which is driving this to happen. It's just happening because once you get replicator molecules, the molecules replicate, if they can build machines around themselves, which are better at replicating, they will be more present in the next generation than in the past generation. That process of complexification just goes on and on and on. And eventually you end up with some creatures in this very last blink of an eye that have large brains and can actually look back and understand all of the history uh, that is shown on this timeline. Okay, so that's the modern view of what has happened on Earth. Uh, Early life, DNA replicators, natural selection, 
causing further and further complexification of the animal life, uh, leading to the existence at some point of intelligent life, human life. Okay? But uh, I just want to emphasize again that every major step that appears on this timeline is in a way a kind of throw of the dice. Like, how long did it take for, for photosynthesis to first develop once you had single-celled life? Maybe the single-celled life early on, you know, they, they didn't have photosynthesis. Maybe they got all their energy by just hanging out near thermal vents where there's lots of thermal energy that they could absorb, right? And how long did it take for random variations in the DNA to actually produce a cell that could do photosynthesis? Well, it looks like on Earth, it took about half a billion years. But uh, maybe we were very lucky. And when we visit most other planets, maybe we'll find them stuck in the single-celled life stage. And actually, maybe for most of those planets, the timescale for single-celled life to develop photosynthesis is actually 5 billion years. And by the time 5 billion years has ticked off, uh, they're starting to... Maybe the, their sun is already expanded to the point where it's starting to engulf the, the location of this Earth-like planet. And so maybe they don't really get off the ground because that step uh, actually on most planets takes longer than what we experienced. We simply don't know uh, the answer to these questions. I think if you ask most biologists, they will tend to make, or astrobiologists, that is a biologist that thinks about life on other planets or more theoretically about the origin of life on Earth, most of those biologists will suggest that, oh, well, whatever happened, whatever we see in the record that uh, we've discovered on Earth, that's kind of typical of what we expect on other planets. But I think that that step is a non-trivial step. It might be true that Earth is typical, but it might, be tr it might instead be the case that we live in a vast, empty universe, and uh, there are only a few planets maybe where uh, those lucky planets, life evolved uh, just by luck, faster uh, than on the modal planet. And so that's also a uh, possibility. We just don't know whether that's the case. Okay, so uh, here in the notes, I, I have uh, some of these things I've just been discussing. So is the pattern observed on Earth typical of life developed in other places? Um, could, it have, could life have developed much faster or much more slowly on another planet? Um, as I said, that, uh, universe, as we discussed in the last, last week's lectures, the universe appears to be about 13 and a half billion years old. And there have been several cycles of star formation and planet and solar system formation that happened before our solar system was formed. Um, so we really don't know, uh, what to expect in terms of life on all of these other planets. Um, it's possible it's extremely unusual because of some bottleneck in that history that I just showed you um, for us to find life like ourselves, which is highly complex and intelligent. Perhaps it's unlikely for us to find that on other planets. Um, there is a kind of time limit because, as I said, the universe is only 13.5 billion years old and the lifetimes of stars are limited. So our own star in about a billion years will get somewhat hotter to the point where uh, life on Earth will be much more challenging because, uh, for example, the we'll start things will get hot enough that we'll start to boil off uh, water molecules and stuff from our atmosphere. And potentially at that point, things could be problematic for us. And if you wait even longer, as, as stars, um, stars like ours, as they start to run out of uh, fuel, they have to burn in a slightly different way and they actually get bigger. So at some point, our star will actually grow to the point where it actually it actually reaches Earth orbit and it'll be very tough for uh, life to survive under those uh, conditions. So there's always a time limit for how long you have to get life going, even if you start with a very Earth-like planet, which, which is favorable with water and heavy minerals and things like this. Um, if you don't get things going in roughly, actually the number is not that different from 5 billion years. You probably have five, six, seven billion years to get things going. And after that, it may be much, much harder uh, for uh, life to uh, survive on that planet. Okay. Now, the major progress that's happened in the last roughly one or two decades in astronomy is that 
uh, you know, 20 years ago, we really had no idea how common planets were around stars like ours, like our sun. We also didn't know what fraction of those planets could be Earth-like, could have, say, liquid water uh, on, the, on the planet, like be in a kind of Goldilocks zone where it's not too hot and not too cold on the planet. And, um, but one of the things we've discovered through improvements in astronomical uh, observations is that actually it is not that uncommon for there to be planets around stars and even some planets that are in a Goldilocks zone and so have a kind of climate or temperature range sort of like Earth. And um, as we discussed uh, in the last couple weeks of lectures, there are about 10 to the 23 stars in the visible universe, just the part of the universe that we can see. There are about 10 to the 23 stars, and many of these stars will have planets, and pretty decent fraction of those planets will be favorable in terms of uh, climate and temperature uh, and mineral composition for uh, the production of life. So there, there are definitely many places in the universe where life, it seems, based on our current understanding, um, where life could have evolved. How long that takes and how common life should be, however, is still an open question. Okay, so this brings us to a very fun topic called the Fermi Paradox. And uh, the Fermi Paradox uh, asks the question, where are all the other advanced civilizations, i.e. alien civilizations? Why haven't they contacted us here? Why haven't they yet reached out and contacted us on Earth or arrived on Earth, uh, landed in flying saucers? And uh, this question was asked by a very well-known physicist named Enrico Fermi, who at the time was working on the atomic bomb at the Manhattan Project. And they were just kind of having a typical lunchtime conversation. And I guess Fermi was sort of staring off into space uh, while having lunch and just said, where is everyone? Where, where are all the other forms of intelligent life? Why haven't they gotten here yet? And so that has since become known as the Fermi paradox. I put a couple of links here. There's a nice um, video here, Brian Cox uh, episode talking about the Fermi paradox. There's also the the entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica is pretty good on this topic. Um, I think Fermi's thought process was something like this. Uh, he knew, he knew, as you now know, after the last couple of weeks of this class, that our galaxy is about a hundred million light years across, and it has about ten to the eleventh stars. And so even if you, an advanced civilization, you know, more advanced than ours, but, you know, within the realm of our imagination, you know, imagine that civilization could travel at like one one hundredth the speed of light. Um, there's still plenty of time in the history of our galaxy for them to have traversed large chunks of the galaxy. So I think what Fermi was thinking is if you just do run the numbers and you say, well, our, our galaxy is this big, but relative to the speed of light or even a fraction of the speed of light, it's much older than it is big, right? So the, the age of the universe, we're talking about many billions and billions of years, but the size of it is about 100 million light years. And that 100 million light years contains a huge number of stars, 10 to the 11 stars. So if you start kind of noodling about the numbers, which is probably what Fermi was doing in his head, you decide, well, wait a minute, even if the aliens are, you know, they have to be better than we are. They have to, you know, be a more advanced civilization than where we currently are today. But um, within the realm of our imagination, you would think, oh, they could get, they could send out some probes at one one hundredth the speed of light or one one thousandth the speed of light. And, and yet there's still probably enough time for them to start exploring uh, different parts of the universe, assuming, of course, they're out there to begin with. Okay. So that's the Fermi paradox. And is it really a paradox? Or, you know, as I've kind of hinted in my discussion of the history of life, uh, development of life on Earth, it's possible maybe that uh, life, even though there are 10 to the 11 stars, and therefore quite a few planets in our galaxy, maybe it takes life a long time to develop. And so um, maybe only a very, very tiny fraction of the planets around those stars uh, have had enough time to develop complex life. And humans are just lucky. We're just lucky that we managed to develop before 
uh, our sun uh, expands and, uh, you know, heats up the earth to the point where it's un- we can't uh, remain here anymore. We can't survive here anymore. Okay. So that's the Fermi paradox. And, I, you know, if you go on the internet, people are very interested in the Fermi paradox, I guess, because, uh, well, there's this question of UFOs, you know, every, every, every now and then, or uh, actually for quite some time, people have been spotting strange things that could be alien spaceship spaceships. So it naturally raises the question, you know, are there aliens uh, visiting us? Um, so here I've listed a bunch of possibilities which are relevant to this question of the Fermi paradox. Uh, have aliens visited Earth? Uh, if not, why not? And so here, here are some possibilities. This is not meant to be exhaustive, but I think um, these uh, possibilities that I've listed here are not crazy based on what we currently know about physics and astronomy and biology. So let me just run through them here. Um, one is related to what I've been talking about, which is that in, it could be that intelligent life or complex life is very, very rare. It could be that all those bottlenecks that you need to, all those steps, qualitative steps that you need to pass through on the way uh, from just uh, watery soup to replicate molecular replicators, single cell, photosynthesis, multi-cell, et cetera. Maybe that actually takes so long that most planets run out of time. They run out of time. The stars uh, expand and uh, life situ- the the conditions for life become unfavorable before they get to the point where they have a very advanced species like ourselves. So option one is, well, sure, we, there are a lot of stars and planets in our galaxy, but very low probability of developing life like us on those planets. Um, could be that technology is a very strong limit, and tra- even though there are lots of intelligent species around the galaxy, that um, very, very few of them get to the point where they can travel even at a fraction of the speed of light. It's because quite intense, energy intensive. Now, I think the counter arguments to point two here are that one, um, we already can think of ways of traveling pretty fast. Like if we got over our squeamishness uh, over nuclear energy, we could build nuclear energy powered spacecraft that could probably get, you know, if we allow them to accelerate for a long time, they could get to a pretty decent fraction of the speed of light. And um, it's also very plausible, given what we know about AI, that a somewhat more advanced civilization would be able to build very miniaturized AIs that don't have a lot of mass. And so the spaceships, the amount of energy required for their spaceships to get to one one hundredth the speed of light or one one thousandth the speed of light isn't that uh, hard to accept. So maybe the most plausible kind of alien contact in that scenario would be uh, small but very intelligent, artificially intelligent robot uh, spaceships that are just traveling all around the universe. Um, Okay. uh, Idea number three. um, Well, maybe civilizations don't last very long. So maybe they tend to destroy themselves due to warfare or screwing up their own environment or running out of resources. That's kind of plausible because uh, although we've managed to not blow ourselves up with nuclear weapons um, for Let's see, I guess uh, about 70 years, 80 years now, there's no, there's no um, guarantee that we won't do it tomorrow or we won't blow ourselves up tomorrow or uh, 100 years from now. So it could be that civilizations just don't last that long. Um, this one I mentioned already. So if, it, if advanced civilizations can build AIs, then the easiest way for them to explore the galaxy is to just spend, send out robotic probes because after all, eventually you can miniaturize these AIs till they're quite small and... Um, also, like ideally, you'd like you have self-reproducing robots, robots that could land on a planet, mine that planet <clears throat> for uh, fuel and resources, build lots of build a factory, build copies of themselves, and then send out lots of other uh, robots on uh, spaceships. And so, if that were true, you'd expect the galaxy to have been you know well explored uh, long ago because uh, the planet sends out it's robotic AI probes and then they build factories on the favorable planets that they find and they send out more probes and eventually you cover the whole galaxy and we, we would have been met by these people, uh, at least in some such scenarios. Um, possibility five is that, uh, yeah, there are lots of alien civilizations out there way more advanced than us, but they're actually very wise and benevolent. So 
Uh, they don't want to bother us. They follow what on Star Trek is called the prime directive, which is not to interfere with the development of primitive species like humans. So they just kind of allow us to develop naturally. They're kind of watching us. We kind of live in a zoo, but we don't really know it. And these UFO sightings are maybe just occasional times when the zookeepers screw up and we detect their presence, uh, but they didn't want us to. So it was inadvertent. Okay, so those are five possibilities. Um, They're not mutually exclusive. These are just different ideas that are related to the Fermi paradox. Um, One of the great things about being a scientist is that uh, although it's painfully slow, our rate of advancement in knowledge about these things, we do gradually get uh, more and more information that helps us uh, think more clearly about these different possibilities. Okay, um, this might be the last topic. Uh, let's see. Um, I want to say a little bit about artificial intelligence, AI, and something called the simulation hypothesis, which is even more radical. Uh, it goes way even beyond uh, the Fermi paradox, what Fermi was talking about. And it's related to this question of, you know, uh, do we live in a simulation? Could we live in a virtual world uh, like the Matrix or like in a multiplayer video game like World of Warcraft? Is that possible? Now, why, why would people take this seriously? Um, I think the sh- most succinct explanation of why you might take this seriously is given in this little video where Elon Musk is talking about uh, this question, the simulation question. Um, lots of pretty serious people, AI researchers and physicists actually think about the simulation hypothesis. So it's, um, it's not completely crazy. Um, so let me, let me explain why you might think this is possible. So as we know, uh, based on our own efforts, AI is advancing very rapidly. I think most computer scientists would say that, uh, AGI, so advanced general intelligence, uh, AIs that are in some sense, smarter than humans, even in a general way, um, are probably no more than 100 years off. Uh, it's, at least it's, it's very plausible that we could produce AGIs within the next 100 years. Some people think it's even more imminent than that. Um, it's very plausible that these AGIs will surpass human brains, our brains, by a huge factor. Once, once you get them going and they're able to help you design the next generation and you're able to house them in huge data centers, uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't surpass human capability by huge margins. Now, our brains are pretty special. Uh, as we learned earlier in the class, uh, it only takes roughly, we run our bodies at a bit less than 100 watts uh, power rate, and the brain is using about 10 of those watts. Um, now, um, it may be possible to engineer artificial brains, you know, which are very comparable to ours. So self-aware, as intelligent as we are, and maybe with narrow abilities, which are far beyond uh, what we have. But it's possible that those um, artificial brains, instead of having sensors that connect them to our physical world, they might live completely in a virtual world. So imagine that uh, you're playing some video game and the video game designer says, I want the characters in the game world, uh, Grand Theft Auto. I want the the pimps and drug dealers and assassins in Grand Theft Auto. I want them to be really realistic. So I'm actually going to power the actions of these game characters with actual AIs. And I could eventually power them with AIs, which are more powerful uh, in terms of cognitive ability than real humans, right? There's no reason why that couldn't happen. So uh, these... Um, Game world characters are called non-player characters or NPCs. So player characters are in in video games are us controlling our character in the game world, and the the the, the characters that are controlled by the computer are called the NPCs. And so it's a clear trend that in video games, uh, in in our world, the NPCs are getting smarter and smarter. And there's no reason why, as AI and AGI advance, there won't eventually be. NPCs living in virtual worlds. So their, their sensors are not hooked up to our physical world. They're hooked up to what's happening in the game world, um, which are actually smarter than we are, which are self-aware. These NPCs could be self-aware. They could be super intelligent and they could be living in a game world and they might not know that they're living in a game world. 
right? So, uh, in fact, if you just sit down and you think seriously about the evolution of technology on planet Earth, a completely realistic scenario of where things will be in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, it's hard to imagine there won't be lots of NPCs living in virtual worlds, which are at least as smart as current humans are, right? That seems like it's it's in our future and plausibly within our future within the next few hundred years or thousand years, right? Assuming civilization doesn't collapse or something, it just keeps advancing. Uh, there's no reason to think a thousand within the next thousand years, we won't have huge numbers of NPCs which are living in what seem to them at least to be realistic worlds, but which are totally virtual. They're living inside of big server farms. So now if you think about it, I just talked about that happening, you know, very plausibly in the next thousand years. Um, humans, modern humans have only really been around on the order of a hundred thousand years or maybe two or 300,000 years at most. So all of the technology required to create these virtual worlds with artificial intelligent beings in them, all of that has arisen in the blink of an eye, right? All of our technology really is less than, say, 10,000. We've only had writing, say, for 10,000 years. We've only been around for 100,000 years. And if I extrapolate just one more thousand years into the future, most technologists would agree we are going to have uh, artificially intelligent beings living in virtual worlds, many, many, many of them. And so if you think about that, remember the this 100,000 years or this 1,000 years is meant to be compared to the 5 billion years that the Earth has been around, the 13.5 billion years since the Big Bang. Everything we're talking about is happening in you know, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a blink of an eye in the it, what you would call the cosmic or cosmological history of the universe. Okay, so in the blink of an eye, these apes came along, they got smart, they built a civilization, they learned to, you know, build steam engines, and pretty soon they were creating artificial creatures smarter than themselves. So if you think about this, uh, and all the other planets that exist in the universe where similarly intelligent life might exist, those guys might also pass through this uh, threshold where they're creating artificial intelligences um, because the laws of physics seem to allow us to take energy, use the energy to build machines, run those machines as computers, which process information, the processing of those computers could include uh, the, ex the existence, the, 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 the cognitive processes of artificial intelligences inside them. So the laws of physics seem to allow this to happen. They seem to allow um, evolved beings like ourselves to figure out how to do it in what is the blink of an eye, right? It took a long time on Earth for comp life to go from DNA replicators to single cells, multiple cells, plants, animals, humans. But once we got to humans, it seems like the blink, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a blink of an eye, we got to the point where we could make artificially intelligent beings. So if you ask, say you go a million years in the future from today, which again, a million years is not a long time compared to the age of the universe, compared to the age of the earth, et cetera. But, but to us, it seems like a huge amount of time. And the amount of technological progress which humans might make in a million years is just incalculable, right? Because we've only been developing science and technology for thousands of years, not millions of years, right? So if you just go millions of years in the future, wouldn't you expect there to be more and more uh, different and sophisticated AIs and virtual worlds and AIs living in virtual worlds? And if that really is the kind of natural state that the universe gets to, how can we be sure that we're living in base reality? How can we be sure that we're not ourselves NPCs or some kind of virtual intelligence that instead of my sensory organs really being in contact with the physical world, I'm part of a big simulation and the information that enters my thought processes is coming from the 
the the server farm com- doing computations around me and and me just living as information inside that server farm so um people who have thought this through like like Elon and others and myself um it's hard to avoid the conclusion that if you just randomly place yourself somewhere on the timeline of our universe right somewhere not just in the first 13.5 billion years, but you could go forward another 10 billion years or, or more. If you place yourself somewhere in that timeline and then you just look around on that at that instant in time, everywhere in the universe, you say, well, how many evolved ape-like brains are there in the universe at that moment versus how many artificial beings which have been created by advanced, ape, perhaps originally ape-like intelligences, ape-like civilizations, but much more advanced than ours, how many virtual beings are there? And it seems plausible there are many, many more virtual beings than biological evolved beings. And if so, what are the odds? What are the chances that we are living in base reality versus being one of those virtual beings? So that is the, um, that is a so-called simulation question. And um, it, it, it may seem completely strange to you if, if these different steps in the argument are new to you, you may come away from this lecture saying, wow, my professor just gave me this weird science fiction lecture. It doesn't make any sense to me. But if you sit down and you think through these steps, you realize none of these assumptions is completely crazy. And so there is probably a chance that uh, in the history of our universe, maybe not at this instant in time, but you know, averaging over all the billions of years uh, in which life is going to continue to exist in our universe, maybe most of the beings that exist in our universe that are intelligent, self-aware, and uh, think they're living their lives, um, they may be doing it uh, in a virtual world. They may not be in base reality. So uh, let me stop there. That's the end of the course. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, We started out studying very basic things like energy and acceleration and force uh, and the orbit of the moon and things like this. But uh, now we've culminated in uh, talking about aliens and the Fermi paradox and uh, whether we live in a simulation. I hope you guys have a great break after the semester. Thanks. Thanks.